Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I speak with Professor David Blight. Professor Blight is the Sterling Professor of American History at Yale University. He also serves as the director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale. Professor Blight has written extensively on the Civil War and Reconstruction and was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his latest book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Professor Blight, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. It's an honor to be with you. So I like to start these interviews by asking my guests to tell us about themselves. And in your case, I'd love to know about your pedigree, if you will, but also why did you choose Frederick Douglass to be sort of your life's work, really, in in many respects? Well, thanks for that question. I I guess part of the answer is he chose me along the way, I guess. I couldn't help it. But uh, I uh, grew up and came of age in the late 60s and into the 70s. I took the first ever uh, black history course taught at, taught at Michigan State, where I was an undergrad in either 1968 or 69. I don't even remember if I encountered Douglas in that course, but I probably did. But it was as a high school teacher in the 1970s in my hometown of Flint, Michigan, that I first began to teach about Douglas, at least. We were trying, we were creating courses in black history. Uh, <laughs> And Douglas, you know, of course, pretty important in that story. And I, I remember I even bought a poster of Frederick Douglass that I still have framed at, at home in my apartment uh, from the 70s. Uh, but then when I went off to graduate school, uh, which was in the late 70s, to try to see if I could be a scholar, uh, which was at University of Wisconsin, I wanted to work on abolitionism, uh, the coming of the civil slavery, the coming of the Civil War, the anti-slavery movement. And I was particularly trying to work on black abolitionists. And that is how I landed, especially on Douglas. And Douglas then became my dissertation project and, in effect, my first book, uh, which was a study of the meaning of the Civil War in Douglas's life and thought. Uh, I've tried many times to get Douglas out of my life. Uh, I edited editions of his first two autobiographies. I've published essays on Douglas and so on and so on. Um, And I had no intention of doing a full life biography like this until I encountered a private collection of Douglas manuscripts, uh, an extraordinary collection owned by a man named Walter Evans in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, long story short, uh, my... Uh, great good luck at pretty much running into that collection about 15 or 16 years ago now is why I then, it took me some time, but why I chose or decided to write this full life of Douglas. Because that Evans collection uh, is an extraordinary batch of material, especially on the last third of Douglas's life, uh, the older Douglas which we've never known quite as much about. And for that matter, most haven't cared as much about the older Douglas, the aging Douglas. It's always been the younger heroic Douglas, you know, though the former fugitive slave who writes his way into history. It's always been that young Douglas that has seemed more compelling. But this Evans collection opened up that, that latter part of his life as never before. 
and made possible the writing of this book. I am forever indebted to, to Walter and Linda Evans for uh, bringing me into their home. I did many weeks of research on their dining room table in this collection uh, over the, the past years. And I'm thrilled to say that collection now resides right down the street from me here at the Beinecke Library at Yale. Uh, they purchased it two years ago uh, in an extraordinary arrangement. And now that collection has all been digitized and the whole rest of the world can use it. Um, I had to go spend uh, spring break weeks in Savannah in order to use it, which is tough duty. Uh, but I wish it had been here. <laughs> I could have just walked across the street to use it. Anyway, that's in rough how I became interested in Douglas and how I ended up writing about Douglas so much. Uh, and I still can't get him out of my life. He won't go. Well, you know, if you have to have somebody with you, it could be Harvey the White Rabbit or Frederick <laughs> Douglass, you know. Uh, I think Douglas is not a bad companion to have with He's you. A fascinating companion and sometimes an intimidating companion. Uh, but uh, it's it's been an amazing ride with this guy. He wrote millions yeah. of words, and uh, and I still find new ones all the time. I would have thought, as a biographer, the fact that he has written millions of words, and in fact, three autobiographies has to be both a blessing and a, and a curse. Yeah, well, it is. Uh, any Douglas biographer uh, has to, in my view, has to treat those autobiographies as both source, it is a source, major source, especially of his early life, but it's also a subject. You have to keep trying to explain why does this man keep writing about himself? Why does he keep writing his own life? A first time, a second time, 10 years later in 1855, My Bondage and My Freedom, the second autobiography is really his long form masterpiece. That's one of the great biographies in American letters. It's a much more political autobiography. But anyway, it's the third one, 1881, and then revises even that one another time in 1892. This, it's a, the third one's long kind of summation of his life, full of name dropping of all the famous people he had known and some score settling and so forth and so on. So it's source and subject, but I'll say this, it is a problem because Douglas is always there in front of you. He's always trying to impose his story on you. And there's a great deal about his life that he doesn't, say much of anything about in the autobiographies, especially his private life, his personal standing, his family, his children, his two wives. Um, he's not, he doesn't go there. Part of that is the conventions of 19th century autobiography. People didn't write tell-all autobiographies, although P.T. Barnum wrote sort of one like that, but the whole thing was kind of a joke on his readers. Um, in Douglas's case, you don't learn much of anything about his personal private life from the autobiographies. You learn about the story, the trajectory of the public man, uh, the one hero at the center, if you like, of, of his autobiographical productions. So it, it's, it's, both, it's both a source, but it's also a problem. He's always kind of in your way. And you have to find other ways around him, other kinds of sources to get at a lot of different aspects of his life. 
You end your book by writing as follows. Douglas was the prose poet of America's and perhaps universal body politic. He searched for the human soul envisioned through slavery and freedom in all their meanings. There had been no other voice quite like Douglas's. So maybe we could start with Douglas at the macro level with this prose poet of America's body politic. Yeah. Give us that overview. Well, I came to that idea because the more and more you study Douglas from his earliest speech making, when he's only in his early 20s, all the way to the end of his life in his 70s, he is a critic of the United States. He's a critic of America's creeds. At the same time, he embraces them. He's a critic of the idea of democracy. At the same time, he is a lover uh, of the whole idea of democracy in its fullest sense, the kind of sense that maybe a Walt Whitman envisioned it. Um, Douglas wrote about the, you know, the greatest subject of America in the 19th century in some ways was slavery. Uh, you know, the, slavery is at the heart of the development of the country. It's at the heart of the coming of this civil war. It's at the heart of the fighting of it, the meaning of it, the results of it. It's at the heart of the aftermath of reconstruction and beyond. No one in American thought had as much to say about the meaning of slavery and its destruction and its aftermath as did Douglas. Nobody had as much to say about the meaning of slavery as both a personal experience, which he wrote so much about, but also as uh, a national problem, a problem for the world, a problem for politics, a problem for institutions. Uh, Douglas became our analyst of our greatest social problem. And that's why eventually I decided I'm going to call him the prose poet. Uh, there are a lot of prose poets. Lincoln was a prose poet. You know, Lincoln, Lincoln famously had a way with words, did he not? Uh, there were others. I mean, God knows Emerson was a kind of prose poet of democracy as well. Uh, certainly Walt Whitman, well, Walt Whitman was the poet of democracy um, but nobody quite made it a life's work, uh, in prose like Douglas did and his lecturing speaking career and his writing career is over 50 years in duration. And, um, one of the things that becomes when you look at Douglas's life as a whole, that becomes so, uh, extraordinary is He's born 1818 in a backwater of the Southern Slave Society out there on the eastern shore of Maryland along the Tuckahoe River. He's a nobody born nowhere, and he's a slave. But he's going to live all the way through to 1895. He's born in this pre-modern moment. There are no steamboats down the rivers to speak of in 1818. There's no telegraph, no railroad, uh, no rotary press which he will use to, of course, to revolutionize his own life and career as a, as a great newspaper man. But he's going to live all the way to the 1890s. There was a whole new era of modernity where there were things called light bulbs and the first telephones and the first internal combustion engines. And, and God, they could, they could take a, a, a steamboat across the Atlantic in eight days by then. 
people were, you know, were stunned, uh, et cetera. Uh, and they even had this magical thing called the phonograph. Although, so far as we know, he was never recorded, which is hard to believe, but he, he wasn't, so far as we know. Anyway, he's born pre in a pre-modern moment. He lives to a whole new world of modernity. But look what he experienced in between. The, the coming of the Civil War, the, the struggle to redefine a United States out of the destruction of slavery, the, the attempt to remake a country in reconstruction, and then the aftermath of that, which is essentially the betrayal of those those very victories that he had a right to think he had a hand in helping the country achieve. So there's a trajectory to that life that is all about the fate of this thing called an American democracy in its first century and more. I think I'd like you to take a moment at this point to talk a little bit, because I think it's exactly on the point that you've raised about being the prose poet or the the subtitle of your book is Prophet of Freedom. And it's not easy being a prophet. Oh, no. A prophet... (laughs) Prophet to me doesn't mean someone who foretells the future. Rather, it's a person who describes the present in ways that make you uncomfortable. And I think before we go back in time and look at him um, chronologically, because I'd like to do a little of that, maybe you could talk in this prose poet, prophet of freedom uh, notion about his what to the slave is the 4th of July speech? Because in some sense, that's a, a, one of his best, and it articulates the theme that you're talking about. Well, that speech, that he, that he gave it in 1852 on the 5th of July uh, in Rochester, New York, what to the slave is the 4th of July, is his, it's his masterpiece. That, that is the greatest speech of his life. It's one of... It's the masterpiece of American abolitionism, for sure. Uh, and it gets anthologized in all sorts of collections now. Um, what makes that speech so emblematic for Douglas is it's, it's a classic uh, example of the great Jeremiah tradition. And by that, we mean the tradition the New England Puritans uh, sort of perfected out of the Hebrew prophets, the original Old Testament prophets. It's named for Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. But this is the idea that a person, a Christian, would call his flock, his people, his nation, his congregation, his whatever, to the altar to tell them, remind them of their, not just their sins, but of their betrayal of their very purpose, their betrayal of their own creeds, and to warn them. This is what the Puritan Jeremiah was always doing, to warn them of their likely coming destruction if they don't mend their ways. Now, we, we've all heard sermons like that or speeches like that, and every now and then you'll hear some. We don't have too many great orators anymore in American politics, but every now and then somebody gives a speech and some, some pundit will say, well, that was quite a Jeremiah, and people must wonder what that means. Well, what Douglas did in that speech is he accepted the invitation from his local friends in Rochester, New York, which is where he lived by then. He'd been living there now for five years. The Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Rochester invites him to give a Fourth of July oration, which was already an American tradition. Somebody had to be the orator 
on every 4th of July or whenever they celebrated it. And there's a letter in which Douglas says he worked for three weeks on that speech, which shows he delivered it from a text that is more than 20 pages. It's almost 25 pages. He, in fact, I, I must tell your audience, every major Douglas speech, dozens and dozens of them, even from that antebellum period, exist in a text form first. He wrote them. He didn't just walk into a hall and blow out the lights with, you know, sermonic oratory. He could do that. And he sometimes broke from the script. But he wrote these babies down. And that one we have in, in a textual form. We have two or three versions of it. In that speech, I liken it, and this is all in the book, but I liken it to a symphony in three movements. And I know most symphonies have four movements, but his has three. Uh, the first movement, relatively short, five, six pages. He sets the audience at ease. He honors the founding fathers. He calls them geniuses. He calls the 4th of July the American Passover. He says he, he embraces the Declaration of Independence. He honors the four first, Jefferson's four first principles. And he meant it. Douglas loved the Declaration of Independence in its principles. It was its practices that he loathed. And about oh, five, six pages into that speech, he says, but pardon me, why have you invited me here on your 4th of July? And then he reigns the pronoun you and your and you and your and you and your down on his audience for pages of the speech. Uh, he says famously, the 4th of July is yours. The 4th of July is yours. You may rejoice. I must mourn, and so on and so on. Um, and he does this now in a second movement of the speech, which is the long middle part of it, which he turns into a litany of the horrors of everything from the holds of slave ships to the auction blocks in America, to the domestic slave trade in America, and to the sounds and even the smell of slave pens. He actually, in that speech, captures almost all of the senses you can imagine done only in language. He makes them smell slavery, hear it, feel it, and certainly think about it. And this goes on for the whole middle of the speech, 10 pages and more. And then he ends that part. Classic move of the Jeremiah, and I think he does Jonathan Edwards one better on this one. He ends that section of the speech by saying, uh, basically, watch out, watch out. There is, quote, a horrible reptile coiled up at your nation's heart. It is about to eat out your heart if you do not change now. It's a, it's, it's a lot like Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, Douglas is talking to his audience as sinners in the hands of an angry God. And there's a pause in the speech then. And you can almost sense he, he probably took a half a minute and let his audience maybe, you know, dry off from the hailstorm. He's just, just wrecked upon them. And in the last little movement of the speech, the last, oh, it's only three pages or so, three, four pages, he says things like, it's not quite too late. 
your nation is young and malleable, it's still possible for you to save yourselves, but you must act now. It's his warning that slavery is going to destroy this thing, this experiment, this, this American experiment, if you don't find ways to end it. Um, it, it. There's a reason that speech is held up so long over time, and now is used uh, all over the country on the 4th of July. There, there are communities and towns that have public readings of it and so on. I've run into groups now that tell me they have neighborhood groups who get together and just read it out loud. It's amazing. I was at a reading of it. I've been at a reading of it now for like four years in a row somewhere. Uh, I was at one this year uh, in North Carolina. Uh, it was done at the site of an old plantation. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, it's, a, it's a masterpiece both of rhetoric. It really is. I mean, it's an ingenious work of rhetoric laced with all sorts of biblical metaphors, by the way, at three uses of the prophet Isaiah, two direct uses of the prophet Jeremiah, and two uses of Psalms. It's a very biblical speech. But yeah. it's more than that. It's an argument about America's political crisis over slavery, which, of course, at that moment in 1852 is boiling over all over the country, over the Fugitive Slave Act, over the escape of fugitive slaves, and last but not least, when he gives that speech in July of 52, Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in March. And it is, whatever we think of that book today, you know, sappy sentimentalism and all that, that book was taking the country by storm that summer. And I venture that at least half of his 600 people in his audience that day in Rochester, who were good anti-slavery readers, had already read that book. Uh, so that's part of the context and not, not again, not least of which it's an election year, 1852. And he knew he had their attention on that too. His writings are so informed by the old Testament, particularly in addition to the Jeremiah stuff that you're talking about, uh, the Exodus story and the need for the destruction of the, of the temple, Jerusalem temple, I guess is the United States and, and slavery. Maybe we can take us back now a little bit to the beginnings of his life and tell us about the young Douglas and how it came to be that he was so Bible conversant that he yeah. got to read and and become the future um, orator, prose poet of America. Well, as a slave, and, and he spent the first 20 years of his life as a slave uh, in Maryland, uh, 11 of those years out on the eastern shore. Uh, in uh, rural agricultural slavery, including eventually being, in effect, a field hand. But he spent nine of those years in Baltimore. He, he went back and forth like three times uh, for various reasons, not least of which was initially his owner sent him to Baltimore when he was only seven years old to be the playmate or companion with the owner's brother's son. But while there, he learns his alphabet and his letters from his white mistress, Sophia Auld, when he's about eight, uh, eight and nine. Uh, she taught him for most of two years, like a son. Uh, he also encounters language in the streets of Baltimore among the, his white playmates. He, he, there's a whole bunch of, he calls them 
the street urchins at one point. Another time he calls them the boys of Philpot Street. These are little Irish kids. He later, in, in the last autobiography, he actually named them. I mean, remembered their names. They were all Irish kids, Irish immigrant kids. They were 10 years old and they hadn't learned their racism yet. And they, they kind of adopted this little brown boy. But this little brown boy couldn't go to school like they were. But from them, he learned about the book they were using in school called The Columbian Orator, which was a school reader uh, and huge bestseller across the country for schools. But it was also a manual of oratory. And Douglas then, when he was 11, manages to get his own copy from a bookstore in Fells Point in Baltimore. Uh, says he paid for it with a little bit of money he'd held up. He'd managed to put under his pillow from some job he did for somebody. And that book changed his life. The first 20 pages of it is it's by Caleb Bingham, a late 18th century uh, teacher. Uh, most of the book is a collection of, of orations from antiquity and from the Enlightenment in Britain and the U.S. So you get speeches by Demosthenes, Cicero, William Pitt, and Ben Franklin, and so on. But the first 20 pages is a how-to book about oratory. Not only how to modulate your voice and build to crescendos, but even how to physically use your body as an orator. And this kid took to this. He not only took the literacy, but he took to this idea of oratory as a teen, an early teen, and then a teenager. And also along the way, and this, this is important, how much before he ever escaped from slavery, he had embraced language. He got to know a kind of old storefront preacher in Baltimore. His name was Charles Lawson. Douglas didn't make this up. Lawson was a real person in Baltimore. Uh, and we, in fact, we can verify almost everybody in Douglas's autobiographies. He doesn't cheat us on that. But his old father, Lawson, he sometimes called him Uncle Lawson, Father Lawson, was a biblical fanatic. He, but he didn't read very well. And once this kid latched on, this 12 and 13-year-old kid latched on to him, he latched on to him back. And they would spend whole Sundays, Douglas tells us, or even evenings when he had time, sitting on the stoop of old Lawson's little cabin. By day, Lawson was a drayman. You know, he just drove a cart around town for some money. And they would just read the Bible out loud. Douglas tells us, especially the Old Testament. Now, what does a 13-year-old understand about the book of Isaiah? Not much. But the language, the King James language, is what Douglas got into his head over and over and over with old man Lawson. Then we know that Douglas attended four different churches in Baltimore. Uh, he was free to go to any church he wanted to on Sundays. And he attended two churches that were predominantly white and had white ministers and two churches that were predominantly black with black ministers. He heard all kinds of preaching before he ever escaped from slavery. And some of those preachers were to some degree models for him. So even before he escapes and gets up to New York and the New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he's discovered by William Lloyd Garrison and, and other abolitionists, he's already been not only steeped in biblical story, but steeped in the cadences of the King James language 
and in the whole idea of homiletics, that is, you know, preaching from an altar to a text and so on. And one of the first things he does when he gets to New Bedford, Massachusetts with his new wife, Anna, is he immediately joins the local black church there. He's only 21 years old. And within that first year at the little AME Zion Church in New Bedford, they have him in the pulpit. Somehow they discover this kid could preach. And he starts preaching. And he even gets technically ordained by the local, you know, by the church's council. <laughs> uh, and that's where he gets discovered by Massachusetts abolitionists who, who find out, well, there's this very young black fugitive slave down at this church. And man, the kid can, the kid can tell a story. And that's how the oratorical career of the 19th century's greatest orator got discovered and started. Now, he did not come out of slavery a writer yet. That takes time. That's, uh, he didn't come out of slavery a, a totally formed orator either. He, he goes through a lot of learning process, but he already was a creature of words even before he got out of slavery. So let's talk a little bit about the maturation of him as a speaker. You mentioned um, William Lloyd Garrison. Tell us who Garrison was and how Douglas and Garrison spent really the next six or seven years. Yeah. I think you said that he was perhaps the most traveled orator, second perhaps only to Mark Twain um, during the during his lifetime. Yeah. Douglas was, yeah, but, but yeah, so Douglas. Garrison, <laughs> uh, well, William Lloyd Garrison was uh, for a while Douglas's mentor. He's twelve years older. Uh, Garrison was the greatest American abolitionist when Douglas met him. Uh, Garrison was not a trained preacher, but he was deeply biblical. And Garrison had created the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and, and then later the American Anti-Slavery Society, a national group. And uh, But Garrison was a doctrinaire moral suasionist. That is, Garrison believed that the only way you changed the country and people was through their hearts. You had to persuade them, moral persuasion. You were never going to do it through the political system because Garrison believed the U.S. Constitution was hopelessly pro-slavery. They're going to divide on that eventually, really divide over that. Um, but he was inspirational, Garrison was, to this young Douglas. Douglas loved Garrison. And Garrison was an organizer. Garrison had a movement and edited the longest-standing anti-slavery newspaper ever called The Liberator out of Boston. And Douglas started reading The Liberator before he'd ever met Garrison. In fact, in one of his jobs, it's one of the coolest scenes in, in his autobiographies where he tells us, that in one of his jobs in New Bedford, before he'd, he'd been discovered, he's only 21 or maybe 22, he was in a foundry where he was working in a foundry where he worked the bellows, that, that thing that keeps the, the machine working. And he said he would tack up the liberator on the, on the wooden wall next to him, and he could work that bellows with one arm, probably really developed a lot of strength, but he could read the liberator while he was doing the bellows. He's, he's a young man taking his reading to work, like some of us grew up taking our reading to work because we had these dull, meaningless jobs. Um, but he loved Garrison. 
in the early years, and it was Garrison and Garrison's organization that put Douglas out on the circuit uh, as an anti-slavery lecturer from 1841 right up to 1850, uh, I'm sorry, 45, uh, when Douglas published his first narrative, the short one, uh, this one right here, uh, the 120-page narrative of the life of Douglas, which Garrison's organization in Boston helped him get published. And then Douglas went off to England for, he didn't know for how long. Maybe he was going to stay six months. He ended up staying almost 19 months, 1845 to 47. And it was this flowering experience he went through in Ireland, Scotland, and Britain, where he meets all of the meaningful abolitionists of all three parts of the British Isles. Uh, He made lifelong friendships in Britain and Scotland and some degree even in Ireland. And he became a celebrated hero among the Brits and the Scots and the Irish. To this day, you know, he only spent four months of his life in Ireland, but they have two statues of him. They have murals of him. It's like Douglas is some kind of national uh, hero in Ireland for odd reasons. But anyway, uh, he comes back from that experience, which is absolutely transforming for this 27-year-old man. He comes back from that experience seeking a whole new independence. An independence for his career, an independence for his mind, and an independence for anti-slavery strategies. And in the late 40s, into the early 1850s, he has a terrible breakup with Garrison and with the Garrisonians over in Boston, which is a big pivot in his life. And part of that breakup was personal, but part of that breakup was really strategic. Douglas was becoming a political abolitionist. In these years, he's coming to believe the Constitution can indeed be interpreted as anti-slavery. He comes to believe in embracing politics and political parties, which Garrison did not. And he comes to uh, embrace a broader kind of advocacy of law as well as of heart in the abolition movement. But Garrison was crucial to him, even though they ended up having a really bitter breakup in the early 1850s. You write, paraphrase, but but your language essentially, it says uh, in the book, Douglas spent the decade of 1841 to 1851 with Garrison trying to denounce voting as a mechanism of black freedom. And in the 1950s, he endeavored to secure and cast that vote as one of the central questions of his public life. So, I mean, that's really a, a diametric opposite of what Garrisonism was all about. He became an activist. He became uh, a political, later he becomes, well, I think it would be fair to call him a political revolutionary. In a way, yes. When the war came, especially when the war came, and even before the war. He, one of the other contentions he had with Garrison and Garrisonians is that Garrison was really a pacifist in a, in a quite strict way. They, they, they called it non-resistance then. But Douglas, as a fugitive slave, and there were others like him, had found it very difficult to take a, a rigidly pacifist approach to slavery. Uh, he'd been notoriously, viciously beaten, especially during one year of his life in slavery. 
he'd seen every horror slavery could wreck upon people. He'd seen it done to his own siblings. He'd seen it done to women. He had watched his own aunt when he was only six years old, beaten, bloody right in front of him. And physical violence is something Douglas understood completely on his own body. And so this idea that you could overthrow slavery, something so entrenched, so huge, so powerful as racial slavery just by persuasion. After a while, it didn't make sense. And then especially after the Fugitive Slave Act, it didn't make sense because the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 tried to make all Northerners, white or black, uh, in effect complicitous with enforcing the return of fugitive slaves. And there were numerous violent rescues of fugitive slaves, a couple of which Douglas himself participated in. And he became, by the early but especially mid-1850s, an advocate, to some extent, an advocate of the possible uses of violence, especially collective violence, to destroy slavery. If he could ever find a scheme, a method that might work. And to some extent, this is why and how he befriended and became involved over the course of the 1850s with John Brown. Although in the end, they parted ways. uh, And if they hadn't, we might not even know about Douglas. You had a very much shorter biography. Yeah, yeah, you would have. You would have been hung. He'd have been hanged in Virginia. Yeah. But you, you, yeah, you write in this time, um, that Douglas was, quote, desperate for political strife that could forge revolutionary change. He asked himself, was a person whose tools were his pen, his voice, and his vote, could he simply wait, await moral logic and the force of history, or did he have to try to force a cataclysm? Well, I'm grateful for that question because it's at the core who Douglas is by the mid-late 1850s and when the Civil War comes about. The problem with that question is that he never found an adequate answer. Who did? You know, um, the problem all abolitionists faced by the late 1850s, and especially Black abolitionists, was how indeed will slavery ever end in this country, especially after something like the Dred Scott decision? The Dred Scott decision, if people don't remember, said not only that Dred Scott had no right to, you know, sue his case in a federal court because he was not a citizen, and not only said he's still a slave under the laws of Missouri, it said black people are so far inferior, these are the words, you know, famously of Chief Justice Roger Taney, they are so far inferior that they have no rights which white people must respect. In effect, the Dred Scott decision, six to three by that court, said black people have no future in America in the polity, in civic life. They will only have a future as slave laborers or even free laborers. But by the late 1850s now, what do you do? And if you decide to turn toward revolution, if you cannot find a path to abolition of slavery through law and politics, which is what Douglas always preferred. 
then the only choice you have is some kind of revolution. But what kind of revolution? Led by whom? To what end? Slave insurrections, anybody with one eye open who'd read one book understood that slave insurrections, there's only one that had ever truly succeeded, and that was in Haiti. And that led to enormous bloodshed, even though it did lead to the creation of the Black Republic of Haiti. Slave, slave insurrections almost always ended up in the death of a lot of slaves and a lot of bloodshed and very little political change. Douglas knew that, but he was willing to listen to a guy like John Brown and others if they had a plan he thought might have some possibility of causing events, causing uh, trouble that might make the American political structure, political system, burst apart enough, they would have to do something about slavery. Mm-hmm. Now, did he fully predict the Civil War? No, 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 no. I'm never saying, you know, oh, Douglas saw the Civil War coming in 1857, 58. Or... Nobody really did, fully. But he did, just as you quoted that passage, he did wish for, hope for, yearn for, some kind of breakup of the American political system that it would force, perhaps, I mean, his highest hope was some kind of sanctioned war against slavery. Of course, lo and behold, that is what eventually came. Not overnight, but it did eventually come. So the the late 1850s eve of secession, Frederick Douglass is a Douglass deeply troubled, deeply worried, whether he, his family, or black people generally had any future in the United States. He was so desperate about that, that in the spring of 1861, though he was always opposed to these emigration schemes, these these schemes for black people voluntarily to leave the United States and relocate, you know, remove themselves, colonize themselves to the Caribbean or Central America or back to Africa, for that matter, to Liberia. Douglas had always opposed that. He always found that a denial of the basic birthright of black Americans. But even Douglas, in April of 61, booked passage on a steamer to go visit Haiti and just have a look, just considering having a look in this crisis of secession and all of this. He was going to go with his daughter. In fact, his two of his, at least two of his three sons who are now reaching their you know, 19 and 20 of 18, 19, 20, are pressuring their father on this idea of, you know, father, if we don't have a future here, maybe we ought to think about leaving. Maybe we ought to think about going. So he booked passage to go visit Haiti just to have a look. And he was to leave one week after the firing on Fort Sumter. But when the firing on Fort Sumter occurred, which came as pretty much of a shock to most Americans. He wrote this little passage, little column in his newspaper and said, trip to Haiti canceled. I'm remaining here to find out what comes of this. (laughs) So, uh, you know, the outbreak of the war kept him here and gave him new hope. Well, and he said, he said, um, or you quote him saying is, let the conflict come. Mm -hmm. Um, because his view was only through, if you will, the destruction of the temple, yes, would the, there the, be freedom? Understanding comes in. He 
he took his vision of history. This is not always easy for a lot of Americans to fully grasp. Uh, but he, he took his essential theory of history, vision of history, uh, whatever his personal faith ended up being, he took his sense of history from biblical understanding, that history is full of these moments or episodes when either God or forces in history happen, collide, and put the course of history on a, on a different path. Uh, did he believe it was always God doing it? Well, you know, in the 19th century, people had words for God, like divine providence, or the divine will, and so on. But there's no question, Douglas saw a kind of divine intervention in the outbreak of the Civil War, and he's hardly alone in this. Uh, people on both sides in the American Civil War are going to interpret it this way, as a war somehow for God's ends uh, on, on both sides. And, you know, especially when wars become existential, when they become totalizing, uh, people fall back on whatever version of spirituality they possess to try to understand why it's happening to them. And, uh, yeah, he saw the Civil War as metaphorically a kind of destruction of the American temple out of which it would have to be now rebuilt and you see he had a complex relationship with with abraham lincoln he supported he supported lincoln which was not what many of the abolitionists did he he remained a republican all of his life oh yeah but but their relationship was at least in the outset in 1863 and even 1864 a bit strained but to your point of divine intervention maybe you can talk a little bit about Lincoln and Douglas in, in the early years and what Lincoln feared. I think this was very interesting for me. What Lincoln feared if he lost the election, what was, what he was hoping Douglas would help him do. And maybe you could talk about that. And then take us to really what is um, for Douglas and Lincoln, their great bonding moment, which is the second inaugural. Yeah, it is quite a story. I mean, we'd, a lot of people would like to think Douglas had an enormous influence on Lincoln. And I'm always a little careful about that because I don't think we really know that he did. But we do know they met three times and they're important moments. Now, their relationship really is very tenuous at best uh, in the first year of the war, year and a half at least. Uh, you know, Douglas was a ferocious critic of Lincoln's in 1861 because the Lincoln administration and the army was trying to enforce this policy of returning fugitive slaves to the South, returning fugitive slaves if they came from loyal owners, which was never really, never really workable, but that's what they were trying to do. And to Douglas, a radical abolitionist, the process by which Lincoln and his government and frankly, most of his generals were moving toward emancipation was just way too slow. In fact, at times, Douglas thought non-existent until the summer of 62. And then there begin to be inklings that maybe Lincoln is, is moving against slavery. Um, now, there's st it's still a rocky relationship. In fact, at one point, 
Douglas said some of the harshest things anybody said about Lincoln. He called him the most powerful slave catcher in the land. And, and it got worse from there. But it was after the preliminary emancipation proclamation, September 22, 62. And in that 100-day period between the preliminary proclamation and the final proclamation of January 1st, 63, that Douglas began to develop a different conception of Lincoln. It's not altogether happening at once because nobody fully knows that Lincoln will sign that proclamation and even what it's going to mean. Because the thing that animated Douglas's hostility to the Lincoln administration more than anything was that the Lincoln administration tried to recruit him to be their, in effect, czar of colonization. The Lincoln administration was scheming in 61, 62, into late 62, to create colonies in Central America and even off the coast of Haiti to colonize freed blacks from America if the war ends up ending slavery. Douglas hated these schemes, especially when he got directly approached by Montgomery Blair, a member of Lincoln's cabinet, asking him to be the leader of the federal government's colonization plans. And there's no more visceral, brutal letter that Douglas ever wrote then this long letter he writes back to Montgomery Blair and in effect told him where he could put his colonization schemes and his idea that Douglas was going to lead it. So he didn't fully trust the Lincoln administration yet until Lincoln signed that proclamation January 63. And of course, the final proclamation, it's very important for people to understand. The final proclamation is different than the preliminary proclamation in two important ways. One is it no longer had anything about colonization. The preliminary one did. And two, it called for and in effect ordered the enlistment of black troops in the army and navy and in the war. And Douglas's conceptions of Lincoln, of the war effort, of parts of his administration began to shift. Their first meeting, as you suggested, will come later that summer, August of 63. Not because Lincoln invited Douglas to Washington, but because Douglas just went there on his own. Because at that point, Douglas, for about almost six months, had been engaged, as many others were, in recruiting uh, black soldiers for the Union Army. He had helped recruit about 100 members of the famous 54th Massachusetts Regiment, two of whom were his own sons. So Douglas had family skin in the game now. In fact, this, this Douglas's whole family went to war in one way or another. Everything was on the line for his family. But those black soldiers were experiencing brutal discriminations, unequal pay. They were never allowed to be officers. They had inferior equipment at times. And by August of 63, Douglas's son, Lewis, his oldest son, had been badly wounded at the Battle of Fort Wagner, the famous battle on, on the sands around Charleston Harbor, and was recuperating with gangrene of the scrotum, to be blunt, in a New York hospital, and nearly died. Douglas, on his own, went to Washington, D.C. To, to see if he could get, uh, get into the president's office. He just got in line. He had no appointment. 
and he went in to protest these discriminations. And he told him that he had quit recruiting because of this. Now, Lincoln saw him. As Lincoln famously did, people would line up at his office and he'd just talk to them. They had probably about a 45-minute encounter. Douglas came away from it saying, like people often say, you know, in diplomatic speak, we had a good exchange of ideas. They didn't agree on everything. Uh, and Douglas accused Lincoln of being slow on emancipation. And Lincoln apparently told him in no uncertain terms that he didn't think he had been slow. Anyway, but Douglas came away from that meeting also saying that he had never met a white man of power who treated him so honestly and so equally as Lincoln. He, I think he was awed by Lincoln. And uh, it was the following summer, one more year into this terrible war, that they will have their second encounter. And that's the one you just mentioned, Michael. I'll do that very quickly, but it's a very important meeting. It's August of 64. It's now at the end of this horrible summer, the greatest casualties of the war, thousands and thousands of Union casualties in Virginia and in Georgia and other places. And this time, Lincoln invites Douglas to come to Washington. He needs Douglas. He needs the black spokesman in the country, the, you know, the spokesman of black America. He wants Douglas to come and talk to him because Lincoln has hatched a scheme. He wants Douglas to lead, get this, a, you know, a scheme to funnel as many slaves out of the upper South as possible by election day that fall in November, because Lincoln had every reason to believe by mid-August of 64 that he would lose the election partly because of the sheer scale of war weariness across the North, and partly because the Democrats, with George McClellan as their candidate, were running a viciously racist white supremacist campaign, trying to divide the Northern voters and painting the Republicans as the party of emancipation right on their foreheads, and the party of Negro equality, and on and on and on. Well... Lincoln asked Douglas to run this scheme for him. Douglas left Washington, D.C., believing he was supposed to set up this plan. He had no idea how he was supposed to do it, except he was told the War Department will help you. Well, he went back home. Next two weeks, he's telegraphing and writing to all sorts of abolitionists and friends, trying to get them involved in this. He doesn't know what to promise them. But he is saved, of course, by the war itself, by the fall of Atlanta, first week of September. Even before that, the fall of Mobile Bay to Admiral Farragut on August 25th. And then General Phil Sheridan's movements down through the Shenandoah Valley, such that these major victories and changes on the battlefield changed morale and the outlook of the election. And it did lead to Lincoln's reelection in 64. Now, one last crucial fact about this. Douglas now wanted a campaign for Lincoln and the Republican Party wouldn't let him. They didn't want this divisive, you know, brilliant black spokesman out there preaching about emancipation. They were trying to blunt that, you know, this is classic wedge politics that the Democrats were playing. They didn't want that black spokesman out there 
laying it on the line about emancipation. I'm going to remind white voters of that. So they wouldn't let him campaign. But he still spoke out when he could uh, for Lincoln's candidacy. And he absolutely celebrated Lincoln's reelection in 64 because he saw that reelection then, which was decisive, as proof that the war would now be fought to the end and to the end of slavery. And that leads, I think, to maybe where I want to end the Civil War. And then I want to talk. We don't have a lot of time. Maybe we'll go a little bit over our allotted time. But but we've been talking a lot about the, the, the theme of the Old Testament and Jeremiah and Exodus and Isaiah and all these informing uh, rhetoric, uh, which was so important. And it was in this second inaugural um, hmm. that Lincoln, in, in some sense, I think Douglas said of the second inaugural, he wished he had written it, but he was glad Lincoln yeah. did, right? So maybe but we can I, talk to that a little bit. Actually, I said that. I, I don't know. That. I think Douglas probably thought that uh, because I think Douglas was stunned by this. And by the way, Douglas was there. He went to Washington before the inaugural. He was standing in the audience down to Lincoln's left, 15 or 20 people deep in that. And we have those photographs. Douglas actually heard the speech. Um, But if you look at that speech, that greatest of all American inaugurals, there it is. It's Lincoln saying, for every drop of blood shed by the lash, it shall be paid with blood shed by the sword. And he not, and he explicitly says this war came about because of slavery. It will only end when slavery is destroyed. And I don't think Douglas could have, you know, crafted it. If Douglas had crafted it, it would have been longer. <laughs> but, uh, and he might not have put all that charity for all language on the end of it. That's classic Lincoln. That's Lincoln trying to be the healer. At the same time, he was wrecking retribution on the South in the previous paragraph. But Douglas loved that speech, and he told Lincoln so. D- Douglas called it a sacred effort. Sacred effort. Um, and all you got to do is look at the speech to realize uh, Lincoln himself was employing uh, directly Old Testament language about the retributions of God. The Almighty has his own purposes, as Lincoln put it. Right. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Uh, right. And he says, Lincoln does, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This is going to end and slavery is going to be done. It's a wonderful moment, save for Wilkes Booth and the <laughs> failure of, of Andrew Johnson. And this, this sort of yeah. takes us um, to really what is groundbreaking in your book, the period after the war, the mature Douglas. And we don't have time to talk all about it, but one of the things I'd like you to talk about is something which picks up in the sense you you've come full circle as an author, it picks up what was your sort of dissertation, which is Douglas's refuting of the lost cause narrative. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your your thesis, um, what your first book was, and then what was going on in the Johnson administration. Johnson, who was going to be the Moses of the black people, turned out to be anything but. And yeah. now there's this revisionism 
of what the the war was a, about, and and it drives um, Douglas for to some of his most fiery um, yeah. writings. Yeah, well, Moses was Andrew Johnson's term for himself. Uh, yeah. He, he didn't wear well as a Moses, that's for sure. Uh, Douglas loathed Andrew Johnson and never missed a chance to say it. Uh, Johnson, of course, from Tennessee, was on Lincoln's ticket uh, only because he was the only Southerner uh, from a, an ex-Confederate state who had not seceded uh, when his state did. He remained in the Union. Uh, Johnson was a Unionist. He was also, in effect, pro-slavery, but he was a Unionist. He was also a, a staunch states' rightist and a Unionist. That may seem like a brutal contradiction, but there were plenty of people like that. Now, what happens, of course, with Reconstruction, and it becomes such a story in Douglas's life, is that Reconstruction is, is, as people may understand by now, a rise and a fall. The rise of it made Douglas, by the late 1860s, after Johnson was impeached but not removed from office, after Grant was elected in 68, which Douglas worked very hard for, by 68, 69, and 70, passage of the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendments, the Voting Rights Amendment, Douglas had a right to believe, and he did believe, and he said it many ways, many times, especially in a speech called the Composite Nation, that the United States had reinvented itself. It's essentially an interpretation that historians have now given to Reconstruction for the past 40, 50 years that Reconstruction was really the remaking of the United States in those three fundamental amendments. The, the end of slavery amendment, the equality before law amendment, the 14th, and the voting rights amendment. Flawed as all three of them were in certain ways, inevitably, there was a new United States now, if it could be held together. It was a new United States rooted in section one of the 14th amendment which is birthright citizenship and equality before law. It was, it was a new United States where black people were defined explicitly as citizens. Now, the question was, could that be held together? And of course it wasn't through the course of the 1870s because of the uses of violence in the South, because of the, the reemergence of the Southern Democratic Party. Uh, because of the loss of interest among Northerners in this Southern question, uh, because of the panic of 1873, the, the huge economic depression that hit the country and lasted for a bloody decade. What occurs out of that, not overnight, but what occurs over time, is the loss of those very victories, the betrayal of those very victories, not complete betrayal but a slow process of losing what had been won. And Douglas lives long enough here. He's going to live 30 more years after the war. He lives long enough all the way to the 1890s, not only to have experienced in the middle of his life, in his 40s, this triumph of his cause. I mean, how many radical reformers lived to see their cause win? Some did in the civil rights movement, but we all know the modern civil rights movement also had its counter-revolution. What was Trumpism? But one can hope the final great act of the counter-revolution against the civil rights movement, it probably isn't the final act. But Douglas is going to live all the way to the 90s 
to begin to see the beginnings of the whole Jim Crow system. Uh, Mississippi is the first law to explicitly disenfranchise black voters in 1890. He lives all the way to the middle of the 90s to see this incredible, shocking outbreak of lynching in the first three, four years of the 1890s, such that the last great speech of Douglas's life, which he took on the road in 1893 and 94, called Lessons of the Hour, is all about lynching. It's his, it's his own, really, it's an analytical speech about why lynching was happening. So he's one of those rare people, I think, who is a radical reformer who lives in the middle of his life to see the triumph of his cause and the reinvention of his own country, and then lives long enough to see most of that betrayed, waning, and eroding, if not destroyed, by the time he dies. So the great public pressure the great public issues of his the latter part of his life are the great public issues of the country. And as he ages, he has to face these questions. Does he stay loyal to that Republican Party? How does an old, in fact, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of his life, and it became one of my five or six main themes of the book, is how does a radical outsider become a political insider? And then what happens to him? Because he did. He became an insider in the Republican Party to a degree. He never runs for elective office. But he does gain three major appointments in the federal government from Republican presidents. And he attends as a speaker every Republican national convention from 1872 on to, to the end of his life. Uh, he becomes a, a celebrity figure of the Republican Party and a celebrity figure of the lecture circuit. But he's going to now have to deal with the criticisms, the attacks from the next generation. This is, this is classic, isn't it? It's the same thing that happened to the, you know, the aging leaders of the modern civil rights movement. Perhaps everybody except John Lewis. Although John Lewis, you know, people attacked him too, or, you know, early on. But Douglas ends up having fights and bitter rivalries with the next generation of black leaders who are all at least 20 years younger, all born in freedom, not born slaves, all with college educations, <laughs> which he didn't have. And some of those, some of those rivalries and fights he has with John Mercer Langston and Richard T. Greener and others, uh, believe me, the Evans collection made my analysis of all of that possible. And it, animated in some ways those latter chapters of the book because it shows us an aging man who has not lost his chops who likes being on the pedestal and does not like anyone trying to knock him off and it showed a, a part of his humanity and indeed a, sometimes a rather ugly part of his humanity uh, that I found utterly fascinating and at the same time and I'll stop with this, but at the same time, he is managing a private life with a huge extended family, four surviving adult children, 21 grandchildren, and a whole variety of other hangers-on who kind of always were around Douglas, and almost all of them financially dependent on him. And I made a vow in this book that readers can decide whether I accomplished it that I was never going to write a single chapter that was just about the private life or just about the public life 
I always mix the two to some degree because we don't live our lives that way. We, we live our lives public and private virtually every day. You know, we, some days more public, some days more private, but he had to do the same thing. And when he came back from a big lecture, he had to deal with all kinds of craziness going on in his extended family, bankruptcies, marriages falling apart, attacks in the press, <laughs> you name it. Because his family in Washington, D.C., his extended family, even to the next generations, became what I call in the book a kind of black first family. And everything they did got into the press, the good, bad, and the ugly. And it, it made the story, it made a biographical story of this man at the center of it just that much more fascinating to know that he was dealing with all this stuff on the personal side at the same time. He's dealing with all these big public issues like the exodus to Kansas, like lynching, like terror in the South, like what to do with about, about the Republican Party. Uh, so like any other major leader, he's got to balance these two. Uh, and that's the kind of book I tried to write. It's a wonderful read. As I said before we came on uh, for the conversation, this was the longest book I've ever read in my life. Wow. And I read it cover to cover and it just flowed right through. No one should be intimidated by the size of this book because it it reads like almost like historical fiction. You know, it's not, of course, but you animated the characters so well that you are just waiting to turn the next chapter to see what this, as you call him, prophet of freedom is is up to. Well, that's uh, that's uh, felt deep in the heart, Michael, because, uh, you know, Getting a reader like you became is exactly what we all want. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that and for doing your podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, to my listening audience, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning book is called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Well worth all of our time because it raises so many very important issues. I'm very grateful to you, Professor Blight. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.